We're, we're going to be easing our way back into Second Peter. Uh, as most of you know, we, we preach through Scripture verse by verse, and we're easing our way. We're going to be in, uh, I'm sorry, I said First Peter, I meant Second Peter. Second Peter uh, chapter 2 today. Um, if you would stand with me in honor of, of reading God's Word. If anybody needs a Bible, the ushers are here, they've got a Bible, just raise your hand and they'll get you one passed out. Uh, I, will, I will give you a heads up. When I say easing our way back in, I mean it. Um, I'm just going to do a, a I'm, I'm mostly going to be reviewing where we've been up till now. I'm just going to barely be touching on the next passage uh, for today. Uh, but I am also going to be jumping around in the scripture quite a bit. Uh, so uh, get ready. Having said that, uh, in Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through th- 3, Peter says this. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would, uh, you would illuminate our hearts, uh, open our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that we might hear what it is that you have to say to us about Uh, our world, about our culture, about our lives, but most importantly, about you and who you are. Uh, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would remove anything uh, in me that is of error, and that you would just speak to the hearts of those that are here today. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Before we sit down, take a minute to greet the neighbors around you. Well, good morning. As I said, it's a, it's an honor to be here with you. It's always an honor. It's for me, it's a pleasure because uh, I, I usually get to be back there and I just get to soak it in from, uh, as you know, uh, Rick's just amazing preaching. And, uh, and so for him to, to be gone and ask, uh, ask for, uh, help, you know, and fully filling the, the pulpit, it's, it really is an honor. Um, I will tell you, uh, though, that uh, having this passage delivered, you know, t- talking about false teachers and uh, and all that kind of stuff, and being told that this is, oh, hey, you know, preach on this, um, that's a tough passage to walk into, and um, I'm going to get Rick for it. Uh, I don't know how, but we can be creative, like maybe you could, if you got any good ideas, but uh, hey, get up and talk about false teachers as you know, hopefully I'm not one of them this morning. Um, so like I said, normally we go verse by verse and, uh, and, and this next passage in chapter two of, uh, of second Peter, it, it starts out an extended period, uh, where he's talking about some, some kind of in-depth things. And so rather than me jumping right into it, what I'm going to do mostly this morning is kind of review where we've been in Second Peter up till now. Um, 
Maybe you little you remember uh, a little bit of the context. Second Peter uh, in Second Peter, uh, Peter is in prison. He's writing to his audience um, as he is about to be martyred for his faith. He's convinced that he's going to die for. Uh, for spreading the gospel message. And he wants to make sure that his readers, those people who are in the churches in Asia Minor and throughout the ancient Roman world, he wants to ensure that they would remain strong in their faith as they were fighting pressure on two fronts. Uh, On the one hand, they're fighting pressure because they're living in a culture outside of the church that was very hedonistic, um, uh, very uh, just wild and woolly. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, A crazy place, religiously very diverse with their pantheon of gods uh, that they worshiped. And on the other hand, they had pressures inside the church that he was worried about. Pressured as this new church was growing and they were trying to figure out what the Christian way of life meant for Gentile and Jewish believers learning how to worship together and do life together. And so to overcome these challenges from both inside and outside the church, Peter highlights the need for concerted effort toward continual spiritual growth and maturity. You might remember from uh, chapter one, verses five through eight, he says this for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter says, make every effort, that's a Greek word that he uses there that really punches home. It really emphasizes the fact that, that it takes purposeful effort on our part. The apostle Paul will talk about this in Philippians chapter three, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this word that Paul uses for press on, it's, a, it's an interesting word. Throughout scripture, it's almost always uh, translated to persecute, to go after and try to get something and In reality, it's a hunting term. It means to stalk your prey. Isn't that a great analogy? You know, hunters don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go find me something delicious to kill. And they go out and do it. Good hunters, serious hunters 
have a plan. They study their prey. They get to know about their prey, where they like to hang out, what like they like to eat, how they move through the forest. Good hunters practice with their weapons a lot. And then they get up crazy early in the morning. That's why I'm not a hunter. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes effort. It takes a plan. And Paul shows us by his example that we're supposed to pursue, pursue spiritual maturity in the same way that a hunter gets up and goes after a prize buck in deer season. And Paul says in this passage, he says, I haven't gotten to perfection yet, but here's what I do to keep going. First, he says, he forgets what is behind couple things about forgetting. It's not like when uh, forgetting is not like uh, what I often do. Uh, when I mentally misplace somebody's name, Fred, are you in here? Fred's probably downstairs. I met Fred this morning and Fred introduced himself and he says, my name's Fred. And I thought I'm preaching on forgetting names. I better not forget Fred's name. So if you see Fred, you tell him I remembered. But this forgetting is not like that. It's not this accidental. I misplaced a piece of information. It is a purposeful choosing to not bring the past up into remembrance. It's an active choice to not live in the past. That's a hard thing, isn't it? I know for some of us, we have a tendency to live in the past, to beat ourselves up because of past failures, past mistakes, past sins. We get bogged down in our failures and it becomes this sick trap of paralyzing perfectionism and insecurity. And there is no spiritual freedom in that. For others of us, forgetting what lays behind is hard for the opposite reason. You've done everything right. You've, you've been the golden child. Your past successes uh, can also hinder you because you don't see the need to change or progress. I think Paul is probably referring to both of those because our past sins and failures and our past triumphs have the ability to distract us from moving forward. And Paul says, I actively choose to leave the past in the past, good and bad. And I press on, I pursue, I stalk my prey, the prize with energy and focus. And that prize, Paul says, is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's as if God is in heaven with his arm around Christ and he's looking down at us and he's saying, you can relax. He's already done the hard work. All you have to do is keep your eyes on him. 
learn about him, learn who he is, fall more and more in love with him. And as you do, you grow to be more and more like Christ. That's spiritual maturity. That's growth. And both Paul and Peter are in agreement. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen. It takes concerted effort and a plan for continual work. What's your plan? Do you have a plan for spiritual growth? It's a challenge. Sometimes it's easy to just sit and receive, but to be intentional about growing requires effort and a plan. Well, continual uh, growth, spiritual growth doesn't just require effort. It's built on a biblical foundation. Let's go back to our passage in second Peter. In order to really hammer this home, this idea that they and we need need to continually work and grow in spiritual maturity, Peter goes back and he reminds them of his gospel message that he brought to them. At first, he he appealed to his own authority as an apostle. That that came from his his personal experience with Christ. But more importantly, he appeals to the authority of Scripture. You you might remember, it's been three weeks ago that when Rick was here and he preached on uh, verses 16 to 21, and he talked about how valuable Peter's firsthand eyewitness testimony was at the the Mount of Transfiguration when he was with the three apostles and and Jesus, and they were up there and uh, Elijah and Moses appeared and God spoke from the heaven and he was there. And he said, because I was there because I was one of those guys, I have authority and you should listen to me. But more important than that, more valuable than that is the gift of the scriptures, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us without error in the original languages and infallible for your life. Have you ever sat back and just reflected on how amazing it is that we have a God who is a personal being and loves to reveal himself and his greatness to us. That's an amazing thing. If you go back to the first verses of Genesis, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's only one way we know that. Is because God revealed that to Moses. He said, I'm revealing myself to you as the all-powerful, creative author of all things. And then talking about creation in, in Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 19, the first couple of verses there. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. He reveals himself even in his creation. I like what the writer of Hebrews says in the first couple of verses in that book. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Look, there's only one reason that we exist. It's that we would know and love God for who he has revealed himself to be. And that's amazing. That is our purpose. And I don't know about you. Knowing these things about who God is and who he has revealed himself to be. I have to confess that far too frequently I find myself in a spiritual rut. And in those times where I find myself in a spiritual rut, it's pretty much inevitable that I have taken my eyes off of Christ. I've gotten distracted by life. I've forgotten then I have a relationship with the God of the universe who wants to reveal himself to me. And I slip into approaching my faith as a intellectual philosophical exercise. I mean, I don't do it on purpose, but you get distracted and it happens. Maybe you know the feeling you go to church because it's what you do. You read your Bible because you're supposed to read through the Bible in a year. And you've got a thing that tells you, this is what I'm reading today. You pray until you, your mind wanders. It all seems perfunctory. It it almost seems like it's just what we do, but then God will do something that reminds me. That my relationship with him is a living and breathing thing because he is a living personal God. And our relationship is meant to be interactive. When you become a, a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that the same Holy Spirit who is responsible for the guiding and writing of the scriptures now takes up residence inside of us. And the Holy Spirit then takes the truths of the, of the scriptures that he's been responsible for writing and he takes the mess of our lives and he massages the scripture. He massages God's revelation of who he is into our lives to change them, to make us more like Christ. Um, Rick's not here. So in order for you to know that you're at church, I'm going to, on his behalf, I'm going to have to use uh, a food analogy. (laughs) And if you're a visitor, are any visitors here today? If you're a visitor here, so, um, when you come back in the future, and I hope you do, you will never not hear Rick preach something about food. Rick loves food. He knows food. I don't know anything about food other than my wife makes good food and I eat it. 
But because I know my wife is a good cook, sometimes we will watch uh, the, some of the baking shows, right? And, uh, and I don't know this for personal experience, but I do know that the really good chefs, the really good bakers who want to show off their talent, um, when you're making something, a lot of times when you're baking things, uh, the ingredient, ingredients, you don't just throw them all in and mix them up and then cook it, right? Sometimes you have to put in the ingredients into the bowl little bits at a time, and then you start applying pressure and you beat them a little bit until they get mixed the right way. And then you add a little bit more and you heat them up and then you, you beat that works in our lives with the scripture. He takes them in little bits and pieces and applies them in, in the pressure of our lives. And as we learn and we grow in our faith, and we learn, we bring the Bible, the scripture, as God has revealed himself into that process, it changes us. It becomes the foundation of our faith. And then God uses his revelation in our lives for his service and our growth. Well, not only does spiritual growth require effort, and it's built upon the word of God, Continued spiritual growth guards against heresy. And now we get into our passage a little bit from today. Second Peter chapter two, verses one to three. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Uh, in biblical literary terms, this statement is what is known as a bummer. Uh, if you go back to chapter one, verse three, um, Peter starts out with, he's just like at these mountaintop highs, right? He's a, God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Yes. And then talking about later on, he talks about us being richly provided and him on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he talks about his, his, his time on the, the Mount of Transfiguration where God spoke from heaven. That's awesome. And then he talks about the scripture and how it was written by the Holy Spirit for us and given to us. And he just builds and he builds and he builds. And then his pinnacle of this statement is people are going to come and they're going to lie to you. And some of you are going to fall away. It's not super motivational, is it? It's not what we want to hear, but it's real. It's true. It was true back then. And it's true today. The reality is, is that we live in an age right now that is very much like the day that Peter was writing. The world out there is diametrically opposed to living accord, according to God's word. It's nothing new. 
it seems to us like it's getting worse. I don't know about you, but it seems to me like it's getting worse. But the reality is it's nothing new. This is the way it's been. What's different, it seems to me, is that as you look around in many churches today, it certainly appears that there is less and less distinction between how the world says that we should live and how some churches say that we should live. How is it that false teachers have been able to come in and begin teaching things that are just a patent lie? Well, for one thing, sitting still and focusing and really thinking about things the way we're supposed to do when we study our Bible or when you come and you sit and you listen to a, a, a long sermon, it takes mental energy. It's tough. It just is. Doesn't mean it's not great. It doesn't mean that it's not worth it, but it requires work. And often what God is trying to teach us in his word and in those sermons is uncomfortable because it confronts sin in our own lives or in the lives of people that we care about. And it sometimes requires an uncomfortable response from us when we're confronted with that. That's why Paul will tell Timothy in second Timothy four verses one through four. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In our own passage in second Peter, it says that they even deny the master who bought them. Now it's certainly true that in Peter's day and throughout the history of the church, there have been people who have taught heresies Uh, in one way or the other. They have, uh, they have denied who the early church said that scripture revealed Christ to be. They either deny that he is truly eternally God, the God who created the universe or they denied that he was really a man. He just appeared to be a man. That's what the early church councils, all you might remember, like the Nicene Creed and those kind of things. That's why they, they stood those councils up to address those heresies. But I would submit to you that even though we don't see those quite as frequently anymore, although you still do, we still have cults and heresies out there, obviously. I would submit to you that even within the church itself. And we have people who deny the master, even from the pulpits of churches. They deny 
that God's righteous standards are unchanging. They deny that God's, uh, that God made man and woman, women in his image and that sex is only supposed to happen between one man and one woman who are bound in marriage. There are pastors who deny that God uses hard financial times and diseases and struggles in our lives as he makes us more and more into Christ's image. They do that because standing up against an entire culture and saying, I choose to follow God's revealed word rather than your ways. That's hard. And looking out at a congregation of people who you love and calling them to holiness when it might offend them is hard. And so because of sin, they choose to deny who God is and they preach a lie. And for some people in the congregation, because of the sin that we all struggle with, some people in our congregations want to believe the lie because it's just easier to go along and get along. But in order for this not to become too much of a bummer, and we all start questioning, questioning whether or not we're listening to false teachers and we're going to be those who are falling away. Don't give up hope. I'll ask you, you can glance down to verse nine. If you have your Bible open, we're not going to camp out there, but uh, Peter says this very simply, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptations. How does he do that? Go back to Philippians. Paul said, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when, when we place our faith in him, he lays hold of us with a grip that we cannot break. And while our salvation in no way comes from our own effort, it does require effort to grow more like him. Growing more like him, becoming more spiritually mature it requires us to spend time in the scripture. It requires us to get to know who God is and revealed himself to be. And our pro progress in spiritual maturity cannot happen if we haven't already been made spiritually alive. How does that happen? It's by Jesus death on the cross where he sacrificed himself for us standing in our place. The, the technical term is imputation. There, there's a, the true the imputation. It means you give somebody something. When Christ went to the cross, God imputed your sin, my sin to Christ. And then when we place our faith and trust in him, 
God imputes God's, or Jesus' righteousness to us. It's a transaction. Jesus stood in our place so that we might receive his righteousness. So that we might bring, he might bring us together as a united church. As his bride to himself in the last day.